133 Games podcast on uh, late January. Thank God. Uh, I've been seeing a lot of uh, movies either here or there. This is the Games podcast. What am I doing? I've been having to sit through some January movies. I just felt the need to uh, commiserate with someone, but you're not here for that. You're here for games. Uh, my name is Tom Chicken. My game of the week this week is not XCOM Enemy Within. Uh, here, of course, is where I would also have my other guests with me, but once again, I'm doing another interview show. Uh, we'll get to that in a moment, uh, but I once again want to apologize if you're not into board games, uh, because that's certainly been a big part of my January, and I'm afraid we are uh, once again doing a board gaming-related podcast. Uh, and, and what's more, this podcast is for a board game that I've just completely fallen head over heels in love with. Uh, there's a, a game called A Study in Emerald, based on the Neil Gaiman short story, which is really just, it's more of a concept. It's, it's not even much of a story. It's basically a gimmick. Uh, it's a cute one. But the idea is, what if uh, the minions of Cthulhu ruled history? Um, and furthermore, what if then, uh, what would it be like if Sherlock Holmes were investigating a murder in, in that situation? Uh, it's a sort of a, uh, a brief flight of fancy with a rewarding twist at the end. Um, this world that Gaiman imagined uh, has been expressed in a much more detailed form in a board game recently released called A Study in Emerald. Uh, I wrote a review for the front page of Quarter to Three that I would invite you to read, and I am now about to enjoy the privilege of, of speaking with the developer, a fellow named Martin Wallace, uh, although I have to say I kind of feel that I'm one of the last guys in the world who should be talking to Martin Wallace. He has a, a long history before a study in Emerald, uh, and my familiarity with his games only goes back to the immediately preceding game, called A Few Acres of Snow. Before then, he's got a game called Brass, a game called Steam, uh, a friend of the, the site, uh, Tom McMillan, has written up uh, a game called A Struggle of Empires that Martin Wallace has made. Um, he's made some Discworld-themed games. Uh, frankly, I don't even know what Discworld is. Uh, Terry Pratchett. There, I've just said the entirety of everything I know about Discworld. Uh, so Wallace has a, a very long history as, as a designer of board games, and I'm very much a Johnny-come-lately. Uh, I, I liked a lot. I, I really liked A Few Acres of Snow, and even that, I didn't discover that until it had been out for well over a year. Uh, so A Study in Emerald was just released. Uh, I invite you to read my review of it, and um, I, I think you should play it. I think you should get it. Um, unless you're a super casual board gamer, it has a lot to offer a lot of different types of board gamers. Uh, it works very, very well with three or more. It's a different kind of game with two players, but even that I, I've quite enjoyed. Um, and it's not just a theming gimmick. There's a lot of really shrewd mechanical stuff that Wallace does with A Study of Emerald. Um, so we'll get in a moment to my conversation with Wallace, but I first want to let you know this is a, at times a kind of down-in-the-weeds design discussion. Uh, we'll be talking about some very specific things. Uh, I don't know if that's going to be boring or not to someone who hasn't played the board game. Um, maybe it'll uh, intrigue you. Uh, but if not, in case you're about to bail, in case you're thinking, ah, I don't want to hear Tom talk to some designer about some detailed board game that I've never played, uh, I'll pass. I'll go uh, listen to 
uh, something on Idle Thumbs about video games. And by the way, we will get back to video games, I promise. I'm just doing a lot of board gaming lately. Um, so, but in case you think, I don't want to hear someone talk about studying Emerald, let, let me just tell you a little bit from a narrative perspective about some of what I've discovered, uh, including as recently as uh, since talking to Mr. Wallace. The, the interview with Martin Wallace was recorded a few days ago. I'm just now posting it, and I've played a few times since then. I have just discovered, if, if you're into Lovecraft, uh, you may know of something called Amigo. It's just the letter M-I-G-O. Um, are they from Pluto? I don't know where they're from. But at any rate, it's a flying creature. Uh, maybe you know it from Arkham Horror. I think in Arkham Horror, Amigo sits in what's called a skybox outside the city, and he can swoop down to any location on the city. So Amigo is an, an airborne monster. In uh, a study in Emerald, there's Amigo, which I've never really used, but I am now bound and determined to use him because I've started playing the game a little differently by being more aggressive with assassinating enemy agents, attacking them. And that's uh, that's not something that at first is very intuitive or easy. You don't always have a clear sense for how well it, how easy it is to pull off, how easy it is to be foiled, uh, how much risk there is. When you're first learning a board game, it can be hard to be aggressive. Um, so one of the things that uh, I have learned to do as, as I've been playing more is be aggressive. And one of the things I want to marshal for that aggression is Amigo, which is a card in the game that you can use to basically airlift assassins onto other players. Uh, it's free. It doesn't use up one of your precious actions. It doesn't take any money. Once you get Amigo, it is an airborne platform. And the fiction of the game is that uh, the Miko keeps agents' brains in a jar, and it can move them around that way. And uh, So that's something that I've, I've wanted to try. Um, I've also discovered recently uh, there there's a card called the Diogenes Club that lets you draw two additional cards into your hand, and you have that many more things you can do in your turn. I had a game recently where a friend of mine had two Diogenes Clubs in his deck, it's a deck-building game, so the, the conceit is you start with ten very basic cards, and then as you play, you're uh, grabbing more powerful cards and building them into your deck. So I had a game recently where a friend of mine had two Diogenes clubs. So he would get these turns where he, he, he doubled his hand size, and that's a huge luxury in a deck-builder. It basically gives you access to an unprecedented number of cards. Um, so that's a great way to create a, a powerful economic engine in a study in Emerald. Uh, I, and, and for instance, th- there's a whole... Uh, you, know, you know what? I could just, just talk at length about some of the mechanics and the narrative, but I'm just going to get down into the weeds, which is where I'm about to go with Martin Wallace in this interview very shortly. So rather than do that, uh, I encourage you to read my review um, maybe read some about the game. I, I think it has a pretty wide appeal. I definitely recommend it, uh, and hopefully you can enjoy my conversation with Martin Wallace, uh, and then I'll be back afterwards to tell you a little bit about what we'll be doing next week. Uh, Martin, 
one of the things that really strikes me uh, the more that I play Study in Emerald, I think maybe I've gotten in uh, somewhere between 10 to 20 games now, and I sometimes still feel like I'm just scratching the surface of what you've done. Um, what continues to strike me about it as, as an utterly unique aspect of what you've done is, is the scoring mechanism, um, which is so central to the design, it seems to me, and is also, as far as I can tell, Absolutely unique. I don't. I don't. I haven't seen that sort of thing in other board games. Uh, it, it's sort of about getting the most points in a very specific situation, um, but that situation is not always clear since the identities are initially hidden. Uh, can you tell me about how you you struggled with this? Because the way it turned out, I can't imagine it came to you fully formed. Did this uh, come out over several iterations? Is it something that you felt you toyed with in other games? Um. It's difficult to remember where um, ideas came from, but I think the scoring was actually there pretty much from the beginning in a certain form. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I remember yeah, in the very early form, the idea was that you won as a team. Um, so you, you, you would add up points on each team, with team with the lowest set of points would lose. So that was actually the original idea. Mm-hmm. But it, there was a certain dissatisfaction because they... Okay, you can win as a team, but it's not the same as being an individual winner. So after the first playtest, we changed it to where there was an individual winner. Um, and yeah, the original rule then was to be an individual winner. And if there was equal number of players, you would total a points on each side. If there was an odd number of players, then it would be the player in last place would eliminate their team. And then afterwards, I thought, let's just simplify it and just say whoever's in last place eliminates their team. Um, but yeah, I agree. Without that, it wouldn't work. Well, I, it, it forces me to, when I play the game, I watch the score track with a very different eye because of that dynamic where if someone is on my team and they're in last place, they're going to lose for me. You know, whoever's in last place, his team is disqualified from winning. Um and furthermore, what, what's unique is the number of ways you can get victory points, I feel. Uh, there are very different. Some of them might not even come into play during certain sessions. Uh, but uh, one of the kind of obstacles that I run into when I teach new people the game is they have to have this new concept of what team means. Your team is, you're still vying against the people on that team, but you have to watch them in a unique way from the, the way you watch your other opponents. Uh, and it just feels like such a, a unique dynamic for me. Uh, so I end up playing it and interacting with players in a completely different way. Uh, did, uh, were you aware that it would feel utterly unique? I mean, did it... Um, um, did... I mean, I had a good feeling about it when I first designed it. I mean, in, in my head, I thought, when you first design a game, the only place you play it is in your head. And in my head, I thought, this seems like it'll be quite good. Um, I think the first playtest I did was just two players, um, where really the flavour doesn't come out. Um, but I had an inkling at that point that, yes, I think this, this is something special. And then, yeah, when I tried playing it properly the first time, I mean, it pretty much worked the first time it was played. Um, and then it was just a case of, let's say, just ironing out a few issues with scoring, uh, scoring work. Um, as far, oh, go ahead, sorry. 
that you know when, when you when you design a game you, you can't actually intend to create that feeling it's just these things happen as a as an accident and you have to be grateful for that what are some other parts of study in emerald that you felt kind of also happened as an accident that as you were working through playtesting as you were hammering out some some design ideas were there other aspects of it that you feel kind of also happened by accident um good question i can't think at the moment uh i think I mean, the rest of it is fairly straightforward. I mean, if you take away the point scoring and the hidden identity, mm-hmm. it's a fairly straightforward deck building game. And because I've been working on another, like a few acres of snow, also working on Mythotopia, there, there are kind of elements that are similar to those games. Like the case of that, okay, well, you just decide which strategy you're going to go for and then fire the cards that are going to help you towards that. Um, so, um, can I throw one at you and sort of ask you about something that I don't know if it happened by accident, but that I feel sets it apart from, say, A Few Acres of Snow, and I presume a lot of your other earlier designs. Um, I mainly know A Few Acres of Snow as far as the previous games that you've done, and in that game, it had a very fixed start. Uh, it was very specifically engineered for its setting, for a type of experience. There's a lot of wiggle room, of course, for various strategies, but it's a more contained design in the sense that you, as a a designer with a few acres of snow, you know exactly what sort of situations the players are going to experience. Um, You're always using the same cards. The the board is, is fairly fixed. But a study in Emerald, on the other hand, has a lot more randomness that I would say verges into sheer chaos. As a, as a game designer, many of the pieces that you've put in there won't be in play in any given game. And there are multiple ways for a game to end, for the scoring to proceed. You, as a designer, have a lot less control over the player's experience. Um, d- does one or the other of those approaches, the more contained situation of a few acres of snow, or the possible chaos of so many combinations in Study and Emerald, does one or the other feel more or less comfortable for you as a designer? Um, I'm comfortable with both. I mean, I, I split between, uh, I mean, as a design I'm working at the moment, which is 99% uh, control. You know, there's very little luck in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, some of my other games, there's an incredible amount of chaos, like Discworld games. Um, I mean, going back to the early question, I think one of the things I, I am quite pleased with the way Emerald has come out. I know you shouldn't pick up your own games, but I am <laughs> actually pleased about it. I think one of the things I enjoyed about it, it came out on one of the early playtests is when uh, one of my key playtesters, uh, Chris Boot, um, he took control of Moriarty and then he managed to convert Moriarty into a vampire, so he had a vampire Moriarty. And Chris mentioned, because he's a big reader of science fiction and fantasy, he said, you know, I read a book where that happened, where there was a vampire Moriarty, and I thought, you know, I had no idea that there was a book on that. But if something can happen in the game that was completely unplanned, and that somebody else had used as a basis of story, then effectively what you've got is a game that does actually allow kind of storylines. And that will probably... That will that will probably happen in one in a hundred games, maybe more than that. I mean, I had another situation where I, I mean, it's my own stupidity. I wanted to prove I was a restorationist, so I thought if I blow up Queen Victoria or Victoriana, that will prove I'm a restorationist. So I, I, I 
even though I was a loyalist. So I, I set my forces up and I went ahead and tried to blow her up. And one of my agents was a double agent, and I failed. So I stupidly had another go. I recruited a new agent, and I had another go, and he was also a double agent. But I failed twice, despite the fact that I was a loyalist. And again, I mean, I completely lost the game, but just it creates memorable events where there is so many other games where it's just kind of case, case of converting these points into those points and then buying some picture points. I, I think with this game, sometimes it doesn't matter if you win or lose. If something funny happens on the way or weird happens on the way, that in itself can be entertaining. I have to say that's a large part of what I'm, I'm loving about studying Emerald, that even when I lose, and I've certainly lost most of the games that I've played, uh, something memorable happens, or there is a, an incredibly strong narrative drive uh, behind it. Uh, yeah. uh, I, I, I feel also like you've, you've put in the chaos, the, the different little pieces that you've thrown in here, I feel like you've had to anticipate so many different kinds of combinations uh, and possibilities. And I want to bring up one, that I experienced last night, where I was sure I had found not necessarily a flaw or a loophole, but a particular strategy that I wanted to do. And I was going to do this strategy, and and it didn't quite work out. And at the end of the game, I was telling the other players, you guys were in trouble, because here's what I was totally going to do, and you wouldn't have been able to do anything about it. And one of them pointed out, no, that's against the rules. So here's what I had in mind, Martin, and I'm wondering if this is the sort of thing that when you make a game, you have to anticipate. Uh, I had gotten the zombie card early on. I was a loyalist player. Uh, as a loyalist, any player can use the zombies, but the loyalists benefit particularly because if they manage to get all eight on the board and then end the game with the zombie card, they get a, a bunch of victory points. So rather than use the zombies aggressively, I wanted to just use them kind of as a game clock. And the way I was going to do that is I was going to take control of, in this case it was St. Petersburg, and I had managed to get the card for Bismarck, who lets you lock down a city where nobody else can get in there, nobody can bid on that city's cards, it's all your own city. So I was going to create St. Petersburg as a zombie pen by yeah. locking it down with Bismarck, and just each time my zombie card came up, because it was early in the game, I could cycle it fairly quickly, I had Freemasons, uh, I was just going to pile up the zombies in St. Petersburg, and then and, and I was going to do it by protecting them with Bismarck. And I, I thought, well, this is a surefire strategy, but then someone pointed out, no, no, Bismarck does not tolerate zombies. You cannot have zombies in a city that Bismarck controls. Uh, so was a part of the design anticipating things like that, working out the interactions of things like like shoggoths and vampires, for instance? Yeah, I think in that case, I think that probably was dealt with. It's difficult for me to remember specific rules, because I'm always working on so many different rule sets for so many different games. They uh -huh. kind of become a blur. Um, but, I, yeah, I do have a memory that that was an issue in playtesting, so I think that's why Bismarck says he, he doesn't tolerate zombies. To stop that. Well, it definitely makes sense so that it, it, it doesn't become, to keep it from becoming a completely non-interactive gameplay mechanic. It seems like so many of the gameplay mechanics have trumps and counter-trumps and exceptions. Um, for instance, in this game, you have a card. I know when I explain the game to people and I tell them about how powerful vampires are, uh, how crazy the zombies get, there's this sense of, oh, well, that's, that's terrible. Never let anybody have that card. You have that Society of Leopold card which yeah. undoes both of them, and as the game goes on, is more likely to come out. Uh, so it just seems like there's so many just counterbalances throughout the game uh, that, that you've very carefully set up. Um, yeah, I mean, 
Although I, 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 I'm not sure the zombies are actually that powerful. Uh, I don't know. I've not really. Uh, I mean, sometimes a player can get distracted by using a limit. It doesn't use them effectively to then gain points. It's very right. difficult to get all eight on the board. Um, it's quite easy for somebody to kill one. Um, but I wouldn't have said they were a game winner. They're, they're definitely uh, helpful for like territory control, and they're scary. They will run other players off who are worried about getting agents killed. Uh, yeah. Uh, but then again, you have this idea that a main agent can't be attacked unless that player has no other agents. So in a lot of times with the zombies, players would park their main agents in my little zombie swarm and just have other basically meat shield agents running around elsewhere on the map, and their main agents could become uh, unstoppable zombie killers, which again is part of the narrative, Martin. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, all of this, uh, all of this stuff with the the fantastic elements of Lovecraft and the zombies and the vampires, uh, it, it allows for a lot of, of gameplay upheaval. Uh, it seems like you're perfectly willing to break rules or to stretch the game in new directions. Uh, would that have been possible if this had become, if this had been a straight up historical game? If you had done this, as I believe it was intentional in, initially designed as just a game about anarchists and the social upheaval, uh, would it have had all this crazy stuff, or does that require the supernatural or fantastical? Um, I, I think it's fair to say it wouldn't have been the same game if it had been a straight historical game. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, I mean, you, you couldn't have had your, your shove-offs that can appear from somewhere and just kill you automatically. You, yes, you couldn't have had your more weirder creatures there. So I think I think for me personally, I think the game's better for having a fantasy element to it, because then you don't have to worry about making things fit the history. Um, although I, I I do see the odd post about people saying that um, that I stuck zombies in there, you know, and that doesn't seem historical. But the whole reason I stuck zombies in there was because I came across a historical reference to an anarchist who felt he was on the verge of being able to bring the dead back to life and was going to use it to um, spring his companions from jail. So they would you know, <laughs> let them die and then he'd bring them back to life and they'd escape. I can, so there's somebody actually thought he could do that. And they well, okay, so now we're in a fantasy world. We just twist the dial one point to the right and he now can do it. So they weren't just stuck in there because it's, uh, there's uh, zombies that are all the rage. It was mm-hmm. purely because I came across a historical reference. Well, and even the way that that they're implemented in the game with that card, uh, it clearly looks to me like there's more of a Mary Shelley approach to zombies than a George Romero. I mean, it, it clearly seems like it's earned its historical place. What you're getting at with the card art, you know, somebody trying to revive that that I think it's like a severed head. Uh, it definitely feels like you've managed to put it in there, like it's it's earned its place. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Is it- uh, Added gratuitously, it was the uh, vampires. And I kind of stuck that in because I've been reading uh, the Kim Newman books on his vampire books, and they just sound mm-hmm. And you can sort of justify it because there are uh, references to vampirism in the Cthulhu uh, works, in the H.P. Lovecraft works. But, mm-hmm. but vampires in the game are not the vampires of H.P. Lovecraft, they're, they're your more classic vampires. 
Well, I have to say what I like about the zombies are this way as a little bit as well. What I like about the vampires is how they fit into the assassination motif uh, and, and also how there's something viral about them. Uh, you know, it, the player has to cycle the vampire card, but over time, he's creating this this infected army of super killers. And again, you've counter-trumped it. If if someone can double agent away a vampire, then he's got his own. I mean, there's a it's a powerful tool, but if someone can subvert that tool and steal a piece of it away from you, you can kind of be hoist on your own petard, as it were. Um, yeah. And and it does feel. I love the viral feel of it. I, I and you do a lot of this with a few acres of snow. The way that the deck builder game fits very elegantly into map control and who's who's where and this sort of jockeying for position. Um, one of the things that the structures that I really like in uh, a study in Emerald is how quickly the game can end and how in a lot of the games I play as somebody is getting closer to ending the game there's this kind of late game quick, violent, abrupt fight for city control how everybody is suddenly scrambling for oh geez, I need points Okay, uh, first of all there's London there's uh, I think Paris, Berlin and St. Petersburg those are all the super powerful cities but then some players will grab the scraps around the edges thinking oh nobody's going to bother fighting for these but there's this whole city control sub-game kind of that pops up at a very specific point in the gameplay progression uh, that, that just reminds me you know this isn't just a deck builder the map is so important here um, yes absolutely um, I mean it can I mean that can also be the weak point if you've got cities going back and forth I think one of the problems of the game for somebody coming to it new is that you really have to know how the points work to drive yourself to victory. And if you just rely on cities, you, you can end up in trouble because they're, they're very hard to defend. Mm-hmm. Um, I was kind of thinking you're probably better off building up uh, a, your points through doing assassination or hiding royalty or trying to get your points elsewhere because you can't lose those points. Um, but, you know, it, it varies from game to game. Uh, you know, what, what's going to win you the game? Well, I, one of the things that I've sort of, uh, for the learning curve for me, Martin, is as we play games and as I realize, okay, that city uh, grab is probably going to happen at some point, uh, is you can tailor a deck to that. And one of the cards that I love, that I've come to love, that at first I didn't really appreciate, and now I go for every single time in my own gaming circle, there's kind of a meta game now about this card just because I've used it so effectively and because it becomes really powerful in that city control bit. Uh, one of my favorite cards, and one of the least sexy, so to speak, Martin, uh, is Inspector Lestrade. Your, your blocking disc sub-game in this game, it, it, it's brutal <laughs> if you are aggressive with the blocking discs. Uh, and it's so annoying, those blocking discs, because of the way you can't claim a card unless it's your first action. So if you just put a blocking disc, even preemptively dropping those... Uh, so that's been one of my strategies is uh, lay some groundwork for the, the city control by just throwing blocking discs all over the place. And it annoys everyone, and now our group hates Lestrade. Yeah, well, I, I, whenever I introduce the game, I say, you know, this is a very powerful card. Yeah. Uh, simply because of that. Um, so, yes, you can, even without it, you've still got your own blocking disc thing. So, yes, you can go for a city strategy if you do preemptively put blocks and there you can build up a kind of defensive position. I mean, one of the rules we had to say, and it used to be you could um, have multiple blocking discs, but then that just killed it. 
because once you had two blocking discs in there, you, nobody was ever going to take it off of you. Right. Uh, so, so it's, it's still not 100% having one blocking disc, but if you can get enough of them on the board, it slows people's ability to take, you know, take stuff off you massively. And it seems like your, your, your goal there, in a way, was almost to err on the side of simplicity. You know, everybody can, has that one blocking disc card, uh, and then there's only one Lestrade in the game. You know, you didn't go crazy with the blocking discs. You didn't bring them too much to the forefront. Uh, and it is a very simple dynamic. Um, yeah. So, uh, one of, uh, one of the, the things, another thing that I think some new players, not necessarily that they have trouble with, but is, is kind of hard to, to wrap their head, it's hard to wrap your head around this narratively. Uh, this idea that if you're a restorationist player, one of your great advantages is that you can go mad or die. Your main agent can die or go mad, and that instantly and abruptly ends the game, but it doesn't mean you lose. Mm. So, so a lot of what happens for the restorationist is he's trying to get that third madness token, or maybe he wants someone to assassinate him. Uh, there's this weird idea that sometimes to win, you have to kill your main guy early on. Uh, and, and that puts so much control in the restorationist player. Uh, as a loyalist player, I, I miss that. You know, I get to the point where, okay, I'm in the lead. I'm confident that the other guy in my team is not in last place. I am now ready for this game to end, and I don't have any easy way to end it. Uh, well, in theory, I mean, a, a lot of games will end because the restorationist leader is killed. I mean, in theory, if you're if you're a loyalist, you should be looking to identify a restorationist player who you can take out and end the game at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Again, I think that's one of the kind of things like again about the game because because it's not always apparent what the situation is on the board. Sometimes you can come up with a way of winning that other people have missed. You know, a lot of other games, the information is all out there, and everybody can pass the information and come to the same conclusion. But in Emerald, it's a little bit more confused, mm-hmm. and you can sometimes see a way to victory that other people don't see. And so, certainly, the loyalists taking out a restoration, if it so happens that the restoration, if they're, if they've got another agent and that happens to be a double agent, you can save that for them, but that, yeah, they're a double agent, and then kill the main agent, game over. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I do take your point. There is certainly the case, yes, if you can get ahead as a restorationist, then go out and look to kill yourself is one way of ending the game. Again, the defense from the loyalist point of view is make sure they're not in the lead, or make sure there's a restorationist last place, and then they can't do that. Mm-hmm. One of the criticisms that I've heard, I don't know about criticisms, but when I when I explain the game and we have a first round, uh, and then one of the reactions I get from some of the players that I've played with, uh, they'll say, well, I, I don't think the hidden identities added much to the game, um, because I, I felt like while it was hidden, I couldn't earn points or... Uh, and I think part of what, what's going on there is that when somebody is told that you have a hidden identity, their instinct is... Keep it hidden. You know, my objective is to never let anyone find this out. But in Study of Emerald, the hidden identities, it's kind of a matter of when you reveal yourself and not whether you do. And there are times where you can go through the whole game and never reveal yourself very carefully. But I kind of think of the hidden identities as a who's going to blink first situation. Is There's this early game part where everybody's waiting and watching everyone else. And the, the point isn't to stay hidden, but it's to decide when, in this uncertain landscape, you are going to emerge 
in your own place. Um, mm. It's a bit like the way that this, the cards come into play from various cities. You know, at what point do you start cashing in on a specific strategy? At what point are you hanging back and waiting and watching other players? Uh, and so a lot of the more effective players right out of the gate, they don't care if you know they're a restorationist or a loyalist. Um, mm. So I kind of feel like hidden identities uh, aren't the same as hidden identities in other games where you never want anybody to know them. Here it's kind of just a trump card that maybe you have up your sleeve for a while uh, that eventually you're going to let let slip. But I can imagine you, you've seen, like I, you mentioned you as a, rest, as a loyalist trying to kill Gloriana. Uh, I can imagine some really insidious strategies with tricking people uh, with those hidden identities. Um, theory, mm-hmm. it seems to me you should always behave the opposite to your identity, mm-hmm. because there are going to be, that puts you in the majority, you know, if you're playing a four-player game and it's an even split, and you're a loyalist and tend to be a restorationist, then in theory there are other restorationists, because they don't know that the, who the other restorationist, they're going to think you're on the same side, mm-hmm. if, if they follow that. Um, so, although then it ends up kind of becoming slightly confused, and that if everybody pretends to be on the opposite side, um, <laughs> you really mess things up. Um, I mean, even I suppose, yeah. I mean, I think I'm, I've, I've seen comments on the internet about they're not sure whether secret identity. It's not even necessarily from a game point of view that you've got those in there. That the reality was. Um, that uh, during this period there were secret organizations on both sides. I mean, there were secret police organizations which would be unaware of the operation of other secret police organizations, which is, you know, why why government sometimes has an issue with these secret organizations, because they can be going off and doing their own thing uh, with, you know, uh, without letting know their superiors what they're up to. Uh, and these things did go on during the 19th century, where you kind of had self-appointed rogue secret uh, police uh, groups going around doing all sorts of stuff. Well, one of the things that I, I love as discovering as I play the game, uh, there are a lot of cards in here that, that don't have flavor text. Actually, none of the cards have flavor text. There's, there's artwork, there's the name of the card, you can see its function. But when I first started playing, I had no idea who Leon Sholgosh was. I didn't know what the third uh, section was. Uh, the Okrana, I'd, no, I'd, I'd never heard of that. Um, y- you have a lot of uh, very specific flavor from the period, very specific personalities, but you don't explain in the context of the game, and I think even in the rules, you don't explain what any of these are. You kind of leave that, I guess, to the player to go look up. Uh, was that was that intentional? Do you, uh, do you like this idea that people are playing your game and having to run to Wikipedia to discover what the historical reality is behind things? Or was that a function of just not having space? Uh, well, it's also space. It's about, um I hate writing rules anyway. Um, putting historical notes into all the characters would have um, been a nightmare. Uh, and also, I think to a certain degree, if people are interested, yeah, you can go on Google and within five seconds you'll find out who, who Leon was. Which is interesting because he did shoot President McKinley. Um, so nobody remembers who shot President McKinley. But there we go. Yep. Uh, uh, 
don't even remember President McKinley. Uh, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, I, it is interesting. I, I, I suppose, yes, you could tell people, but I suppose there'll be some people who will probably get a degree of enjoyment out of going off and figuring out who, who these different people are. One of the files that was uploaded to Board Game Geek, uh, which is a popular uh, site where I know, I know you participate to answer questions for folks, one of the files that I found, which I, I, I love the fact that this exists, was a, a dramatis persona for A Study in Emerald. And it lists all the characters, all the organizations, and maybe one or two lines about who each of them are. Uh, and it was just put together by someone who was really enjoying the game and wanted to share with other people details that he had discovered about the different characters and, and organizations. Uh, and I love that sense of discovery that he must have felt and that I feel, too, when I play. And I think, why does third section do what third section does? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you mentioned, Martin, that you said you hate writing rules. Uh, oh, I, yeah. I kind of find that surprising because... I would think that somebody who loves creating systems, and that's part of a lot of what the art of game design is, must want to talk about them and, and share them and, and, and explain them. Uh, why do you hate writing rules? It's, because it, it's, it's usually the hardest part because you have to try and be so clear and cover every eventuality, and even then you know there's going to be some eventuality you miss. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem is that when you're explaining rules in your own head, you kind of think, yes, this all makes sense. And it's only when you release the, the rest of the world that you find that what you thought made sense in your head does make sense in their head. <laughs> and, and I think, uh, I know that, that, that it, you do actually, I mean, I, I strongly feel that although we may, you know, uh, you know, for those people who speak English, understand English, that there are different ways of understanding English. There, there really are. And, no matter what you do with a sentence, there will be one person out there who willfully misreads it in exactly the opposite of what it says. And there's nothing you can do about that. Um, so you, you, you can never be 100% clear because people's understanding of the English language actually varies from, you know, from person to person. Sure, sure. I guess in a way there's something very dry and technical and almost not even scientific, worse than scientific, about about the art of expressing things in, in English. And, and the, an example that I <clears throat> that comes to mind for me, Martin, uh, you have a rule in there about when a loyalist main agent is assassinated, uh, you don't move the agent. Uh, the idea is that nothing happens to the agent. And some players were able to parse the language in the rules and, and, and raise the possibility that the main agent can then never move. It can never leave that space. And that struck me as absolutely ridiculous. That was clearly not the intent of the rule. But if if you read literally enough or interpret in a certain way a very simple expression of the English language, you could come away with that interpretation. And that must be the kind of frustration that you're talking about. Yes. It's uh, how to be completely and utterly unambiguous without... But also at the same time is that you, you, you can have sentences which are technically 100% accurate but when you read them, you still don't have any idea what they're trying to tell you. <laughs> it's so technically precise, you can't understand the language. So you've kind of got to get the balance right between trying to be unambiguous, but also speaking in a language that the majority of readers are going to be able to understand. You know, I suppose the difference between normal English and uh, a legal document. You know, right. a legal document, in theory, is 
absolutely watertight, but you can read sentences and go, what, what on earth does that mean? And then you have to employ a lawyer to tell you what the <laughs> sentence means. Uh, now, Martin, as someone then who, who has that frustration and who doesn't like uh, writing rules, how do you feel about reading rules? Do, do you look at other game designs? Do you like reading uh, game rules? And I ask that because I understand your frustration. I can appreciate that. But I love reading game rules, even for a game I'm not playing. Uh, as a designer, do you like reading rules? No, no, I, I hate reading rules as well. Maybe that's what it comes down to. I'd much rather somebody explain the game to me. Um, ah, okay. Bored halfway through, and uh, it's it's weird. I mean, you know, if you're going to read, read a novel, read, read, read a good history <laughs> book. But reading rules for fun just sounds perverse. It's just it's not right. It's, Oh, that's awesome that you say that. Uh, Martin, next week we, we're doing a podcast uh, with a couple of folks about how to explain uh, board games to people. Uh, what, what do you look for when uh, you want someone to explain a board game to you? Obviously, there are right and wrong ways to do it. Uh, what do you feel is important when you, Martin Wallace, are having a game explained to you? What do you need from the explainer? Well, I think it's the same as if I was, I, if I was having somebody explain it or if I was reading about it. It's something I tried to do myself, whether I... Even I don't know, but it always helps to have an overall view of the game before you start explaining the minutiae, um, because otherwise you, you can't hang. You know, most games. You know, rules are made up of separate, you know, sections that somehow come together to make a game. Mm-hmm. Unless you know how those all generally fit together, you can end up being very confused. So I would always start off with a very general overview and then hone them in the details. But if you start with the details, then you, you are going to lose your audience very quickly. The way I kind of think of it is it's almost like you lay out uh, either a house first and then you put different rooms in the house or you, you show somebody the arrangement of a closet and then you start hanging in that closet hats and coats in very specific places. But before you can put in those rooms or you can hang those clothes, you need a framework for it. Uh, yeah. So yeah, you absolutely have to start with here's the overall structure, here's what you're trying to do, here is the arrangement of the pieces, kind of, and now we're going to start putting in details. Yeah. yeah. And I think the first example years ago, I guess, when I first started playing German game, I played the Avalon Hill version of Tyranno X, uh, which you may or may not have heard about. But Avalon Hill did these rules, and they did them in standard Avalon Hill language, which is effectively a very lawyer-like language. So you, you had different you know, paragraphs that would state things in an unambiguous way. But there was no section that told you the overall gameplay. <laughs> you had all these sections in isolation, and somehow you had to synthesize all of those elements in your head to work out how the game could play. So, but yes, you've got all the bits there, but you don't have a picture of what the game should look like. Right. So it's really, which which made it really hard to understand it. When you started playing it, you went, "But this is simple," you know. But they made it harder than it needed to be, uh, and that that's always the struggle with rules, you know, trying not to make it harder than it should be. Now, it depends on the game. I mean, I know people say studying any rules is complex and difficult to understand, and it's like, well, yes, that's because it's a complex game. It's very difficult to explain a complex game in a simple way because it's complex. You know? um, 
if it's, you know, I suppose what you have to be careful is if you've got a simple game and then you've got a set of complex rules, then you've got a problem. Right. I, I kind of feel, though, about a study in Emerald, it is a complex game, but what's complex is that initial closet layout or that house blueprint uh, because there are so many different ways to get victory points because of the unique scoring mechanism. Uh, it, it sort of feels like that. It's a, it's a, it's a unique closet or house blueprint. Um, but once people start playing, uh, the actual mechanics of what I do from moment to moment are surprisingly simple. Um, and that actually gets to one of my favorite things about a study in Emerald as, as a game design, and that is the, the pacing of the game. Uh, even though it's got this complex structure, uh, when it comes to my turn, I don't lose sight of that structure because there's not a lot of minutia for me to do, and I don't have to do a lot of numerical calculations. Uh, it's always, I want that card. This guy has one point more of influence than I do, so I'm just going to put two points there. It's always something very simple like that, and it doesn't the, the moment-to-moment gameplay stuff doesn't take my eye off of the overarching structure. Uh, and, and that leads to great pacing. Also, the idea that there are only two actions per turn. You know, if there had been three actions, by the time I got to my third action, I might have forgotten what my first one is, for instance. But you only get two actions. They're very simple. There are no, with the exception of double agents during an assassination, there are no interrupts. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm watching other players because I want to know what they do, not because I need to be ready to pounce on them with something in my hand. Um, so, so how much do you have to engineer, as a game designer, uh, pacing? And is that an intentional part of the experience you're trying to create? Well, when you're designing games, yes, you do have to think about pacing. And I, I find myself using the two-action thing a lot in my designs because I... I find one action unsatisfying. It's like, okay, I've done this, then I'm going to have to wait 10 minutes before I can do the follow-on action. So very often, actions can be paired together so that one feeds into the other. Mm-hmm. So being able to do two actions at once gives you a sense that you're getting somewhere. At the same time, you're right, if you have three actions, generally, at some point, you will forget how, forgotten how many actions you have, and then that, that, that's deeply frustrating. So people generally remember when they've done a second action. So that, that, that is just human biology. It's just the way the mind works. It's much easier to remember when up to two actions than three. Um, and then also to keep the pace going, you make sure you don't have anything that interrupts that flow. So there's no point where you have to stop to do income or things like that, that you just keep going around. Uh, and trying to make sure that individual actions, when they are done, happen quickly, you know, that they don't involve lots of different sub-actions or odd stuff going on. And so that's something that I try to make sure that with all of my designs, that there aren't things that are going to slow the game down. Um, because I'm aware players don't like downtime, um, so you try, have to try and minimize that. Uh, in, in some cases, that's why some games I only limit to four players, because if, if there isn't direct in, interaction going uh-huh. In the players, then the only way to reduce the downtime is to reduce the number of players. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some games are limit to four because adding a fifth one just increases the downtime by 20%, and then that becomes um, intolerable. And I, I find even studying Emerald, just to get back to how we opened the conversation, uh, 
part of what helps with five players in this, where there is going to be more downtime, is I'm with five players, I'm even that much more keenly interested in who the other players are in terms of which faction they're on and how many points they're getting. With five players, it just is that much more dramatic, the whole faction identity thing, and it matters that much more that I watch what other players are doing. Uh, so, so the more players, the more that uh, identity stuff comes into play, the more I really want to pay attention to what everyone else is doing. Uh, yeah. I, I know that you, you also struggled a bit with the concept of the double agents as mm. interrupts. Uh, currently, um, you can only interrupt an assassination or hide royalty attempt. Uh, but at one point, you allowed double agents to interrupt other kinds of actions. We even played last night, and somebody did something with, I think, Irene Adler to steal somebody's double agent token. And he was worried that someone was going to double agent his own Irene Adler. And I explained, no, no, you're always safe unless it's an assassination. So that was obviously a, a pacing decision as well, that double agents, which is the only interrupt in the game, can only be used on assassinations. Yeah, it's, um, otherwise you end up with a situation of, it, I think in the overalls, it, it meant you always had to keep your eye on the board and then decide whether you're going to interrupt uh, a, you know, an action such as claiming a card or claiming a city. Mm-hmm. Um, and you do have to be careful with the way you handle interests. Switching it to they only stop assassinations. Generally, people notice when somebody's going to do an assassination. So that means you can say at that point, okay, somebody's doing an assassination, is anybody stopping it? If you had a situation where every time you did an action, you had to say, is anybody stopping it? <laughs> and the game would take twice as long to play. Uh, what I also like about that, Martin, just from a narrative perspective, uh, you know, if I put a cube on a Nadar or on uh, one of the agents, that's fine. People watch. Maybe they wanted it. Maybe they didn't want it. But the moment someone kills someone else, everybody perks up. Maybe even if they're not going to do the, the interrupt, but to see if someone else interrupts it. Because those are great reversals. Just from a dramatic perspective, where somebody's about to kill Gloriana and get seven points, everybody's watching, okay, who's going who's gonna to turn this over? Uh, it, it, it really creates a unique sense of tension around assassinations. Uh, mm. just, so I, I love, from a narrative perspective, what that does to the importance of assassinations. Yeah. Mm. Uh, one of the... Uh, Another unique aspect of this game is you never know which of the permanent effect cards are going to come out. There are 12. They're utterly unique. At the beginning of the game, only two come out. And then as cities are depleted, more come out. I've had games where 10 of those have come out. uh, And I've had games where only the initial two are all that you ever see. Uh, Similarly, in many games, because of the way you have a deck of, I think, 100 cards and only 60 or so of those will be put on the city boxes, you might have a game where a hugely powerful piece like Sherlock Holmes or Moriarty is not even on the board. Um, mm. What are your feelings about the fact that you've made a game where most likely over half of the pieces aren't going to be in play? Um, I don't have a problem with that because it aids replayability in that Games, you know, games can be dramatically different. Uh, I mean, some games you play, and every time you play them, you're pretty much doing the same thing. Um, I, I like, I like the idea when you come to a game where you, you see what the setup on the board is, and then make a plan from there. So, um, I, uh, yeah, I just, I don't have an issue there because that, that just adds to the right. If you knew that Sherlock Holmes was going to be in every game. 
then that means every game you play, you've got to fight for well, who's going to take control, who's going to mm-hmm. check, mm-hmm. Uh, um, and then it becomes a fixed point in the game. I, I can't help but notice, Martin, that um, this structure of study in Emerald lends itself to uh, add-ons by having more cards. In, in a way, it seems like this is a house with many doors that can be explored. Uh, is is that intentional? Is it something that you've thought about? Uh, I, I feel like you could sell a pack of you know, 20, 30 additional game cards to, to, to shuffle in, and it, it wouldn't, you know, you would have to be careful about what those cards are, of course, but it wouldn't do any violence to the setup or to the initial, to the, to the elegance of the design. Uh, was that intentional? How much thought have you given that? What can you say about that? Um, well, it wasn't intentional. Okay. Uh, the permanent effect cards are only added because we reached a Kickstarter uh, level, and I hadn't even designed them at that point. <laughs> uh, so it's just nice that they worked out. Um, so I, I don't, I've not really thought in terms of expansion cards for a study in Emerald, because uh, you, yeah, you do have to be careful because it will dilute the appearance of critical cards such as uh, Hired Assassin, of which there are quite a number. Um, so it isn't as simple to do as you think, uh, unless you, within the new added cards, you also had already um, cards that are already in the mix, just to make sure that the ratios didn't change too much. Um, it's also a thing with expansions, um, how how worthwhile it's doing from a financial point of view. Because I, I, if you're going to do an expansion, then you have to play test it to make sure it's all, it all works. And my the biggest bottleneck I have in the production of games is playtesting. In that, you know, that, that is my most valuable resource. So uh, I have to question, should I be using playtesting to playtest new games, or should I be using my playtesting to playtest uh, expansions? And there's more money in playtesting new games than expansions. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't mean it might it won't ever happen. I, uh, but it's not going to happen in the short term. Uh, Martin is someone who loves a self-contained game. Uh, I I love hearing you say that. <laughs> well, I, I kind of think you know. I mean, see, I mean, okay. Some of my games are designed with expansions in mind, but they're, they're, those are things like Steam or Age of Industry, where the expansion is a new map. I mean, I don't have an issue with that. But if you've got a game and then you say, "Oh, we've got these extra ten cards that we're adding to," and it's like, "Well, why don't you have those in the first place?" Right. You know, are, they, are those cards making a better experience, or are they diluting it? I mean, some you know, the game should be a game in itself. It should be one hundred percent complete. It shouldn't actually need an expansion to make it better. Because if it did need an expansion to make it better, then it should have had the expansion in to begin with. Um, you know, things that vary, things like you know, different boards and power grip, That's fine because you're not varying the system. You, you're just varying the geography. Uh, but anyway, that's just, just my personal opinion on these things. Yeah, I, I could just hug you for saying that. As, as somebody who uh, tries to keep up with board gaming and sees a lot of business models based around this idea of they're going to sell me the first part and then they're going to sell me other parts later, uh, it's really refreshing to hear you you talk that way. Uh, and it makes me wonder, too, you've been designing board games for as, certainly as long as I've been playing them. Uh, what has it been like watching board games as a form of entertainment and even also as a business model evolve over the last decade or so? Um, I suppose it, I mean it's, it's 
it's interesting, yeah, that the market has changed a lot from when I first started. I mean, what's good is the games market is growing, undoubtedly. Possibly, maybe not in Germany, but I think it's already quite big in Germany. Right. I mean, I, I was in my, I mean, I, you know, I'm based in New Zealand. I was in my uh, local game shop yesterday. Well, it's not local, it's two hours away. But I was happy to be in Auckland yesterday um, to meet with a few people. And I popped into the game shop and I was just talking to him. And it's a really good game shop. They've got a great selection of games. And, you know, he, he seems to be upbeat. You know, they're getting more and more people going in there and asking about games. So, so even in a place like New Zealand, you feel that the, you know, that the hobby is growing. Uh, it's certainly growing in America. Um, seems to be growing in the UK. There's, I mean, I've heard reports in Poland. There's so many countries where the market seems to be growing, which is great. You know, a bigger market. On the other hand, there are so many more games coming into the market. I and mean, everybody, you know, people know this. You know, Kickstarter's kind of added to this trend, but even before then, because technology has changed, it's so much cheaper to get material printed now that people can print their own games rather than having to go, you know, can set up their own games completely like I did and print their own stuff rather than having to submit their designs to one of the big uh, games companies. So at the same time you've got a larger market, you also have a lot more product in the marketplace. And it's certainly the case from some of the people I've talked to who've been in the business for a long time that for the big companies, they're seeing declines in the sales of their units. In that, in the old days, you know, they might sell certain games in the hundreds of thousands, and now it's the tens of thousands because there's so much more competition in that area. Uh, I mean, when I first started in 1994, there were very few companies doing the type of games, you know, this kind of more complex um, European-style game, and now they're all over the place. You can't move for them, and for the, you know, for the medium-sized companies, not the big one. The big ones are immune to this because they don't do that type of game anyway. So Hasbro, but the medium-sized companies who do those medium-weight games, uh, it causes problems for them. So it's like it's all of a sudden in this world of plenty, where it's a golden age. If you're a consumer, it's brilliant. You have so much choice. And there's so much, so many really, really good games. I mean, when I, back in the 70s when I was gaming, there was a few good games, but a lot of the games I played then, you have to say, now, you know, they suck. You know, they weren't <laughs> good. You know, you play them because there's nothing else to play. But you compare them to some of the modern games we've got now, that, you know, the, the standard of design has absolutely gone up since the 70s. Um, so for, from the consumer's point of view, from the hobbyist's point of view, this is a, a, a golden age. From the point of view of the uh, game designer and the point of view of the, the, the game manufacturer, it's a really tough market to make money in at the moment. Are you a consumer, by the way? Do you keep up with uh, new games? Uh, do you do you sort of follow other designs very much? I, I like to play other designs just to, you know, I like see what other designers are up to. So I, I like to try and pick on those designs that are getting a lot of, uh, you know, talked about a lot, just to see what other designers are up to. And also, uh, quite frankly, I, it's not a secret, I am influenced by the people's designs, you know. A few ages know wouldn't have happened if I'd not played Dominion. Um, there are other games I've done where, you know, I've played one game 
I thought, I really like the feel of that game. And so when I come to my own design, I think, you know, I want to try and do something with that same feel. So even though it might not directly use the mechanics from another game, I will use that other game for a basis of the kind of feel that I want to generate among players. Mm-hmm. So it, it, yeah, it's good to play other games because it does, it does, I think it, it helps you in your own game design. Um, also, yeah, if you, you know, if you play something and go, wow, this is awesome, you have to say, well, that, that's the bar, you know, the bar has to raise. You, you, you have to then up raise your own game. Have, have you seen anything lately, uh, other other games that you feel ha- has raised the bar? What 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 lately have you seen that's really uh, struck you? Um, oh, I have to be very careful talking about other people's designs. <laughs> well, but, it, but you can do that in an approving way. Like I wouldn't ask you what other designs have you seen where you thought it was terrible. Uh, what, what else have you seen lately where you thought, wow, that that guy or or, or girl or, or you know that company really knocked it out of the park. They've they've done a great job. I suppose the one that's interesting because I shouldn't like that, but I. Terra Mystica. The first time I played, I really didn't think it was that good. I thought, oh god, this is everything I hate about dry German games of 132 different ways of scoring. <laughs> but it's weird though, because I still, I find myself still enjoying playing it. And it's weird because in itself, there is nothing original about any of the mechanics. Every mechanic you can spot where it's come from. But as a whole, it, it works. Once you get your head around how the scoring works, it, it's bizarre. Um, I let's see what other stuff. I mean, you'd have to go back. I think Agricola moved things on. That that was a, a good design. But again, I've not been terribly enamoured of the follow-up games. Um, I'm not a big fan of games where you have lots and lots of different resources and then you have to convert them into different resources and convert them into points because I just my brain isn't big enough to keep all of those elements in my head. So I tend to like games which are a little bit simpler to understand or, or a bit more direct. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'd probably go back to early games, like Puerto Rico. I think that was a step up, even though a lot of people I think now are kind of done with the game. At the time, it was definitely, you know, it was like uh, an advancement in game design. As was Settlers of Catan, which you know kind of changed the market. Even even though players might now might not play it, but it did. It was an event in what was acceptable for family gamers to play. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, do Do you have uh, amongst the designs that you've worked on uh, a, a game that you would consider your your favorite? Uh, like if someone was to could curate one Martin Wallace game and say, you know, this is an example of a Martin Wallace design, uh, do you have one you could single out? Yeah, it's always a difficult one because it kind of changes which which of my games sure. I like. Sure. Uh, I, I suppose um, I suppose I'm best known for Age of Steam, which then became Steam, um, and I probably still say that was probably. Uh, the best in the sense that when I designed that game I had a clear intention in mind which was to try and do something different from what had been done with railway games up until that point in that you seem to either have the crayon drawing games or you have the 18xx games which I tried playing but for the life of me I couldn't understand because it seemed to go on forever and I think Age of Steam came about because I, um, 
I wanted to try and make a train game that looked nice. I mean, it's probably a bit dated now, but at the time, train games were very functional. They, they were not pretty. Um, 18x game, 18xx games still are functional. Um, so I still, I suppose that was still a design that um, I'd probably say is the best representative of my work because it, it, it is trying to combine. Uh, and also, I suppose, because it's trying to combine a historical theme with a fairly streamlined set of rules. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I'm, I'm very pleased with the way emeralds come out. Um, uh, a few acres of snow, uh, you know, I can have a response to that. Uh, but the thing, is, the thing is, these old games, I never played them anyway. So, I'm sorry, did you say the zombie games? Uh, sorry, no, the, the, the few acres of snow. No, I don't know where zombie came from. Oh, oh I'm uh, sorry, I thought I heard zombie. Yeah, I, I, I have zombie on the brain since my game last night, I'm afraid, Martin. <laughs> my strategy of trying to have a zombie pin in St. Petersburg, uh, that must be still on my mind. <laughs> uh, so, I'm sorry, go ahead. I never play any of my own games after, okay. they, after they've been published. I don't play them. Oh, you really don't? Oh, come on. You, are you not dying to play A Study in Emerald some more? I think I've played it once. You know, maybe one and a half games since it came out. I, I don't have the time. As I say, the most valuable resource I've got is playtesting time. So if I've got gaming time, I playtest. Uh, okay. So I, I did actually play it a few weeks ago because a friend of mine here asked me to explain the game. So I thought, okay, we'll sit down and we'll play the game. Uh, but no, I, I don't like brass. I mean... I never play brass. I mean, for all these players who love playing brass, and I'd sit, if I sat down and played with them, they'd have to explain the rules to me now. <laughs> um, they would beat me hollow um, because I have no idea what the strategies are in the game because I never play it. Uh, well, I, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but you're missing out by not playing a study in Emerald. It's very, very good. <laughs> well, I'd love to be able to play it more, but I, I'd say. I just don't have enough gaming time to do that. Sure. Uh, I mean, I, I always thought when I was doing it, I thought it would be really nice to sit down with a bunch of people who knew the game. Because most of the time, you see, I'm sitting down with people who have never played it before. And that means it's just completely and utterly chaotic. Because you've always got somebody who's got no idea what they're doing, and therefore you can't read what they're doing. But I thought it would be really good if you had a group of really experienced gamers, it would be like playing poker. Because they would be reading so much into every single move. And... I'm not to give away information. I just say, because so you kind of have this weird mix of poker and bridge where your opening moves would almost be like bid. I thought it could reach that point. But as I say, I don't have a group of people who you can sit down with and play it that right. minute to get to that point. Yeah, the, the poker analogy is great because when I, I, I can't help but think I would love to watch a tournament of a study in Emerald where people really who know how to play are playing very competitively uh, to win several games. Uh, I, I think that would be fascinating to watch. Uh, yeah, so... Well, well, Martin, I really appreciate your time today. I've, I've, uh, I, I'm hugely fond of the design. It, it's to me, you talk about those games that set a new bar. I, I feel like you've done that with Study and Emerald, and I feel like you've spoiled certain other games for me. Um, and in a way, I thank you for that. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, congratulations on how, how it's doing. Uh, I imagine uh, it, it, you, you must be happy with its, its reception critically. Uh, it seems like it's the sort of thing that, uh, first of all, the licensing, 
what, what a great coup, by the way. Uh, that whole combination of Cthulhu and Sherlock Holmes, the basis that you got from Neil Gaiman's short story, um, I feel that's a great attention getter. And then once people start playing the game, once they get into it, it's just a great design to boot. Uh, it just doesn't feel... When I first heard about it, I thought, well, that's a, a gimmick. How good can it be? And to then find out how good it actually is, I was just delighted at. And uh, you must be very happy with how it's being received, yes? Uh, I think so, so far. I mean, it's um, it's interesting. I think I personally see it as a mixed reaction, and that there's some people who absolutely love it, and there are other people who absolutely hate it. And I can understand why people might hate it. it it's a question of taste. Um, you know, you, you, to a certain degree, you do have to go along for the ride. Um, so going back to the licensing, I mean, I do... And I've tried to do this with a number of games now that just because the game is based on a license doesn't mean it, it has to be rubbish. Um, I mean, really, what I should have done with this game is given the license, I should have done it in the simplest way possible. But I kind of figure, and if I was a big games company, that's what I would have to do. I would have to do Neil Game and Monopoly or Neil Game and Risk. Mm -hmm. So the thing about being a small company is you can take, you can do things your own way without caring what the board thinks. It's basically the company's run by me and my wife and that we can just do what we want to do. So it's kind of cool doing an overly complex game which actively works against the mass market. But hopefully for those people who do appreciate a, a more complex game, they, they can enjoy that. Does that put any pressure on you to make the next game simpler? Uh, actually, at the moment, I'm going back towards more complex. I've kind of done simple for a couple of years now and it, it, it's okay but I, I prefer actually working on the meteor games so the stuff I'm working on are more medium to heavyweight uh, I'm, I'm going to be doing another Discworld game which will probably be the most complex of the three and the, the, the next one will be more of a gamer's game uh, than certainly the last one which was much more family orientated so um, it doesn't mean I'm, I'm not going to be doing simple games at a certain point but if I do a simple game it will be for another company uh, and because I had an idea that I thought could sell, I could sell to another company but Tree Frog itself is going to be more focused on the more medium to heavyweight games uh, it sounds like you said there were three things in the works have you announced besides the Discworld game uh, have you said what the other two things are uh, well our, we've, we've just launched this subscription offer um, which is on the TreeFrog website. So the next game up is Mythotopia, which is uh, uses is another deck building game. So it has elements from A Few Acres of Snow and uh, Study in Emerald, but it's much more streamlined. There are there are is way simpler than a Study in Emerald. Um, so it's uh, a deck building game for up two to four players in a kind of medieval fantasy world. Um, but which works really nicely actually because it's got that same thing that you've got going in a study in Emerald and that because not all of the cards are in play in every game and because your setup is random, every game is different. Mm -hmm. So and also even what you score victory points for changes because the victory point cards in each game are drawn randomly. So in some games, you know, you'll get extra points if you build stuff, other games you get extra points if you go and kill stuff, other games you get you know, for doing stuff at sea. So it varies from game to game what you're rewarded for, so it's not the same each time. Uh, but what's nice that's come out of the recent paper, I think, you get a whole game done in 60 minutes dead, which, mm -hmm. which is really nice. So if you, if you mess up, right, okay, yeah, well, game's post clean over anyway, let's set it up and go again. Right. 
That's Mythotopia. Um, there's the ships game, which is what I'm playtesting at the moment, which is more of a deep business game. It's actually quite simple in terms of its rules, but has all sorts of things going on beneath the surface that can trip you up. It's kind of this thing where you're kind of going through the history of ships and you have to keep in mind, you know, getting goods in, but also upgrading your ships and not getting caught up by penalty points. And then there's... It's uh, it's interesting. I, I quite like it. It seems to be working nicely, and it's almost zero luck. I mean, it is the complete opposite of a study in emerald. Uh, there's a third game which I still have to get the license for. And it's been interesting. People on board Game Geek have been trying to guess what the license for, and it's like so way off the mark. Um, oh, what? Do they have clues that they're working from? No, there's no clues. Okay. Uh, I mean, to be honest. All the information is there if you're willing to look for it. But, uh, I mean, I'm in talks with the companies that have the license, but I just can't announce anything until they say, yes, sure. go ahead. But I, I kind of figure that they shouldn't say no because it's a great deal for them. So I, I can't see them saying no unless they're stupid. Uh, um, you, you mentioned earlier, I just want to ask real quick, you mentioned earlier that you hate writing rules. I, I the, the one thing I think that must be more odious than writing rules is negotiating for licenses. Is, is that true? Oh, I hate legal stuff. Yeah. Uh, I just go, you know, I, I don't... Gen, generally, I say, let's just agree a percentage and then go with it. I mean, that, that, that's what it comes down to. But then, yeah, if you've got all these big legal documents and things that are right to this and you don't have the right to that, it's just a nightmare. Not, nobody can live their lives by keeping in mind every single contract that's written. So generally, any contract you write, at some point, will breach, probably unknowingly. So the other party won't know because they've not <laughs> on the contract. I, I generally work in that it's if you, if you want to have an ongoing relationship, then you behave in a reasonable manner. Um, so it's like with the Discworld games. I mean, the reality is, I don't actually have, I have a contract with Terry Pratchett, but I don't have a contract with Discworld Emporium because we never got around to writing one. But I still pay them royalties because we agreed a royalty thing. So they still get the royalties, mm-hmm. but that's not actually down on paper. But that's because they're friends. So it's like, yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, no, legal stuff I hate because it's, it, it, it's like, well, what's the point? You, 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 it's not... You can write down the way you should behave, but really it's up to you to behave the right way because... Otherwise, even if it's in a contract, the only way to enforce that is by employing lawyers. And in the games business, there's so little money, as soon as you employ a lawyer, you, you've lost. Sure, right sure. Right. So, so then you mentioned this subscription program from TreeFrog. The idea is that if uh, you pay a, a certain sum, then you're entitled to the release of, I think you called it Metatokyo, the ship's game, and whatever this uh, yet-to-be-specified game is that you're currently working on a license for. What, what you'll get is uh, you will get a special edition of the game which will have wooden pieces in instead of cardboard and it will be numbered in size. We'll be doing 1,500 co- limited editions of each game. The subscription we've got means that you are guaranteed to get each of the games so that you, know, you, you basically pre-buy all three games in one go. Uh, so you don't have to worry about beating the rush when they come out. So there'll be 600 subscriptions available. At the time of release, another 600 games will be available for sale online, and then we'll have 300 copies each to sell at Essen. Uh-huh. Uh, so there'll also be the standard edition as well. Uh, it's just with something like Mythotopia, 
was quite a lot of wood in it, so we couldn't do wooden pieces for the standard one because it would be way too expensive. Um, so the standard edition will have cardboard pieces, whereas the limited edition will have wooden pieces. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, are you saying Metatopia? Mythotopia. Myth. M-Y-T-H-O-T-O-P-I-A. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and that's currently available at, at treefrog.com, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, treefroggames.com. All right. Well, I encourage folks to uh, to check that out. Um, I certainly heartily recommend a study in Emerald. Uh, is a study in Emerald currently available? It's not out of its print run or anything. People can now get that as well directly from Treefrog, correct? Uh, yes and no. Depends where you are. We, we we hit a problem with our order fulfillment company in the U.S. in that when we read the small print, every time we tell them to ship out an order, there's a standard charge of seventy five dollars to read the spreadsheet. <laughs> If you've got a couple of hundred orders on the spreadsheet, that's fine. When you've got ten orders on the spreadsheet, that's ah. not doable uh, <laughs> you know, before they charge for shipping. So what we've done now, we've been in America. If you're in North America, then you need to go to Cool Stuff because uh, they have stock and they don't charge you $75 to send a game out. Um, so go to them. If you're based in the UK or Europe, or the rest of the, uh, then go to Spiral Galaxy, or well, you can still go to the TreeFrog website, yes, because we operate through Spiral Galaxy, so if you're not in North America, you can still order it direct from us. Great, uh, all right. It, it's, it, in the old days, when we were based in the UK, we, we could send everything out ourselves, but now we're based in New Zealand, we have to operate to order fulfillment companies, and it's taken us a little while to find companies that we can rely on and trust to do a good job. But I, I think we've got to that stage now. Great. All right. Well, uh, I recommend folks do that. Martin, I thank you for your time today. And, uh, again, congratulations on the study in Emerald. And I appreciate you sitting down to talk with me. Yeah, good to talk to you, Tom. Thanks for calling. And there you go. I... Uh, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, and there's there's some more board gaming talk to come. But before I get to that, I did think of uh, a couple more things I wanted to tell you about that you can do in a study of, of uh, a study in Emerald. Um, there's a Necronomicon in there. It may not look like much. You might think, ah, I'll get it later. But I have decided if you're playing a study in Emerald and you don't go for the Necronomicon, you are a fool. Uh, also, I told this to a friend of mine, and I think when I was explaining that this happened in one of my games, I think it almost single-handedly sold him. I had a game where I was using Sherlock Holmes. I was uh, kicking ass and taking names. Holmes can do that. And uh, the other player, it's a two-player game, got a Shoggoth and used it to kill Sherlock Holmes. And part of what it did was, uh, you know, I had Holmes. A Shoggoth can kill any agent. I saw him bid on it, and I thought, well, I can't let him have that. I've got Sherlock Holmes. He'll just he'll use it to destroy Sherlock Holmes. So I uh, spent a little time countering the Shoggoth, making sure he didn't get it. Then we went on and struggled over other things. At some point in the game, he caught me unawares. He grabbed the Shoggoth, and it gets put into his deck. Now, once the card goes into his deck, it's going to be a little bit of time before it cycles into his hand where he can use it. So I had this uh, very Lovecraftian sense of impending doom, as I knew that that Shoggoth was working its way through his cards, 
down his discard pile, over into his deck. When was it going to come into his hand? Uh, and I think H.P. Lovecraft would be proud of the sense of doom I felt for Sherlock Holmes on behalf of, of Sherlock Holmes before finally that Shoggoth card came out, and just as I expected, it was used to destroy Sherlock Holmes. Um, vampires are in the game as well, and if there's one piece of the game that I've very infrequently run into, and that I still haven't quite seen the power of them, uh, it's vampires. One of the things in a study of em- in em- study in Emerald is you can, with a vampire card, uh, create virally. It sort of spreads from city to city, agent to agent, an army of indestructible vampire assassins. Um, and uh, if you have ever wondered who would win in a fight between an indestructible vampire assassin and a Shoggoth, well, study in Emerald will answer that question. So uh, I, I promised earlier, and I promise again, we will get back to board games soon enough. Um, I'm sorry, to video games soon enough. Uh, this has not become a board gaming website entirely. Nick has been doing some great coverage for us on the front page with video games. Uh, I think we have some new releases coming up soon, um, and I'm sure I'll get back into to some of them soon. Uh, but in the meantime, bear with me while I, I get all this board gaming out of my system. There's more where that came from next week. Uh, next week, we, I'm hoping that uh, we'll have three guests on, all of whom have made games that I really like. And our topic, instead of just talking about one specific game, will be how do you teach a board game? What's the best way to do it? What's the worst way to do it? What are some mistakes to avoid? Uh, what are some examples of good ways to teach certain games? Um, what are some anecdotes? What's a game that you learned wrong? Uh, what are some tips if you're wanting to bring a, a complex game to some of your friends? Uh, how can you go about doing that? So uh, I find that a fascinating aspect of board gaming, uh, and I'll be talking about it with three gentlemen next week. Uh, and I hope you will join me then. Uh, until then, thanks for listening to me. Thanks again to Mr. Wallace for uh, speaking with me today. And I will hope to see everyone here next week. Mm-hmm.